Amen. Please do uh, take a seat. As you know, uh, we are carrying on through uh, the lectionary, so a series of readings set by the Church of England for the year, and we're carrying on uh, in Luke's Gospel currently. Uh, and so Davina's going to come and speak to us uh, based on that. She's going to do the reading as well. Davina, do you want to come up? Let's pray for you as you come. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that in your word is life. Uh, that your word is living and active. And Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you've been revealing yourself through your word to Davina in preparation for this sermon. And we pray your blessing and anointing on her as she shares what you've given her. Lord, may our hearts and ears be open to you and what you want to say to us through Davina in these moments and through your word. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carl. Good morning, everyone. What a joy to be together. Um, for those of you who've grabbed a church Bible, you will find the reading from Luke 9 at, on page 1040, 1040, Luke 9, beginning at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes I feel pretty sorry for the disciples of Jesus. I think following him must often have been rather confusing. These two paragraphs seem to me to be a case in point. Sometimes he seems to be much more relaxed and tolerant than they'd ever expect, and at other times he seems apparently really tough. Firstly, it happens as Jesus chooses to take his followers through Samaritan territory, the, the direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem, which most Jews avoided because of the racial tension, which was usually very high. 
Jesus has actually done this before, and if you remember, at that point, had an encounter with the woman at the well, whose heart was really open to the good news. So by going through Samaritan territory, my guess is that the disciples were thinking, ah, we're going to meet somebody else who's longing to hear good news. But no. The Samaritans this time are completely hostile to travelers who are heading to worship in Jerusalem. So James and John are hotly indignant. Can we call fire down? Go on, let us blast them. Please let us. You can't reproach James and John for zeal. You're the best, Jesus. How dare anyone reject you? Let us sort them out. Let's get rid of the scum. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the unbelievers for their rejection or their lack of hospitality. He rebukes James and John. No, that's not my way. We'll just move on back to the usual route and have dinner somewhere else. But then we have three more mini-conversations, which are odd in other ways. It's almost as if Jesus is responding perversely. Here are two people who say they want to follow him, whom he seems to put off with strong discouragements, and one person who gives no indication of wanting to follow him, whom he challenges equally strongly to leave everything behind, including the burial of his father. It's all rather peculiar. We need context to make sense of what's going on here. Earlier in chapter 9, we had the crucial moment when Simon Peter blurted out the great discovery, you are the Christ of God. In other words, you're the Messiah, the one God's people have been focused on and waiting for, the one with ultimate authority who will rule and reign and rescue us from our oppressors. And Jesus had immediately begun to explain to Peter and the others that in fact that means not rewards and prestige on earth, but, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And... Since that is the case, he went on to explain how any would-be disciples should imitate him. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he went, he, let me start that verse again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is an absolute reversal of all their expectations. No wonder they're bewildered. The king will be rejected and killed, and the followers will not be important, but have to surrender everything. Let's look again at our passage. One word in particular leapt out at me right from the beginning of it in verse 51. Resolutely. Jesus is resolutely on the journey to his death. Jesus is absolutely clear who he is in God, what his calling is, and where he is going. 
So he has complete spiritual security and poise. If you don't have complete spiritual security and poise, you will probably react too strongly to criticism and get defensive when challenged or rejected. That's exactly how James and John reacted to the Samaritans. But Jesus is modeling, again, the completely different kingdom perspective. You don't need to feel threatened. Love your enemies. Lay down your life for those who don't agree with you. John Wesley yearned for all disciples of Jesus to live out this humility and said, the thing which I resolved to use every possible method of preventing was a narrowness of spirit, a party zeal, a miserable bigotry, which makes many so unready to believe that there is any work of God but among themselves. Or as Oliver Cromwell once wrote to the intransigent Scots, I beseech you by the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken? This is a completely different thing from the contemporary passion for mere tolerance, which can arise out of total indifference. You think whatever you choose to think. It doesn't matter anyway, and I don't care. A Christian's attitude to those who think differently from ourselves is a positive choice of love. If the other person is already a Christian, then love says, God loves you far more than I do, and I love him in you. If the other person doesn't yet know Jesus, then our calling is to reach out to them in grace and acceptance so that they encounter him in our love. What a challenge this is to my, maybe our, tribalism, which seems to come so naturally. Well, they're not my sort. Well, they think some pretty weird things. They're just plain wrong. As always with the Bible, there is a diagnostic question that we can ask, which is really accurate for working out where this stuff comes from. Jesus always says that we should be looking at the fruit of our thinking. Is the fruit of this attitude that it breeds suspicion in our minds of other people, let alone fellow Christians, or does it breed grace? Does whatever we're thinking cause us to be closer to people or to draw away and withdraw from them? If we are separated from them, then it tells us that the fruit is not good fruit and therefore it doesn't have a good root. But again, we can go back and ask God to change us. Further down that road, the road of separation and of what he, Wesley, called bigotry, that narrow-mindedness that says only we are right, 
is the agony of some Christians being violent or aggressive in, quotation marks, righteous defense of God's ways, which can lead to something like the abortion clinics being bombed or attacks on Muslim villages. What a denial of our God of grace and self-surrender. So here, the Samaritans were wrong to reject Jesus and not to offer hospitality. But they knew no better. Jesus was more concerned that those who bear his name should radiate his benevolence and grace. Our thinking, our hearts, must be transformed. Love is to be our hallmark. The journey continues, and so does the disciples' steep learning curve. A man comes to Jesus and declares he will follow him wherever he goes. That sounds good, doesn't it? But Jesus seems to give him a rather hard time. He spells out the cost of that choice of discipleship. Oh, so you want to follow me wherever I go, do you? But I don't want someone who is carried away with a burst of enthusiasm and then decides after a bit that it isn't as glamorous a life as he expected. You have realized, haven't you, that whereas in the natural world, even foxes and birds have their places of security, we don't have anywhere to call home except heaven. Our only security is in God. Is that what you're signing up to? He gives a similarly hard time to the second man they meet, who says he will follow Jesus, but not just yet. He needs to bury his father first. It's easy to misunderstand this. Had his father, in fact, already died, there is no way that a good Jew would have been out on the road. He'd have been at home with the family, very involved in the funeral arrangements. What he means is that his father is still alive, and therefore he's not the most senior man in the family, and therefore he can't put Jesus first now. He needs to put that priority off until a better time. I read this week, in fact, of a a much more contemporary um, example of that, where um, a brilliant young Arab was offered a scholarship to Oxford, and his reply was, I would like to do that, but I must bury my father first. And his father was only 42 at the time. Not ill, not ailing. What in that culture he meant is, until my father has reached his seniority, which could be 40 years, he was putting his own plans on hold for his father. Have you ever been to a ploughing competition? There are some really good ones around here. The winner is the one, of course, who ploughs the straightest furrow. And the one thing that is disastrous if you are steering a plough behind a pair of horses is to keep peering round over your shoulder. Jesus is talking about it here directly. You will run over the traces and cause no end of harm. What is required is complete focus on the task in hand, absolute concentration, being locked on, accurate. 
We're lucky enough, as we know, to have members of the British Legion with us this morning who represent the services. Um, and as many of you know, I have a son in the services too. And therefore, I have often had conversations with him when he's been out on tours abroad or indeed even practicing on Salisbury Plain. One of the key things is when you are given map coordinates as, say, somewhere to rendezvous, they are very precise. You need to go exactly to that place and exactly at the time required. Everybody makes sure that their watches are accurate and that they are concentrating. If you got halfway to a rendezvous point and they looked at each other and said, guys, this is pretty tiring, isn't it? I reckon we could stop here. It looks pretty comfy on this bank. Imagine what the commanding officer would have to say to you. Not because it's just a matter of, you know, it's not great form. It could literally be a life or death decision that you are being accurate and totally obedient. In spiritual terms, that is the parallel of our needing to follow through completely on Jesus' commands. In the same way, if we think we can follow Jesus with anything less than 100% of all you are, it's like stopping halfway to that military rendezvous or looking over your shoulder when you're plowing. In verse 62, Jesus sums it up as, you are not fit for service in the kingdom of God, nor in a good regiment. That may sound harsh, but it's a simple reality. So Jesus asks us, in effect, are you committing yourself irrevocably to coming with me wherever I go? Or are you actually going to be thinking about the things you are supposed to have left behind? Don't come unless you mean it. And then there's a third man also thinking he can follow Jesus according to his own agenda. Yes, I'll follow, but I just need to sort some family stuff out first. That's not unreasonable, is it? Jesus isn't looking for a merely reasonable response. He's looking for a total one. From now on, he has first call on our time, our energy, our money, our relationships. It's a total package. You can't be a little bit born again, a little bit saved. It's all or nothing. Jesus gave all of himself for us. He held nothing back. As we hear in Philippians, he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What he asks of you, of us all, is the response of all of yourself in three ways, total, immediate, and joyful. Total, with no mental reservations, no areas held back, no half and half. Immediate. No, well, I will, Jesus, but I'm really busy at the moment. One day, one day, I'll have time to think some spiritual stuff. And joyful. 
No grudging version of, oh, well, I suppose if I really have to, but my heart's not totally in it, Lord. Will you give yourself to him without reserve, without hesitation, without grumbling? If he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. Is he mine? Is he yours? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our model and pattern and you gave everything for us. Thank you again for giving your life, for that resolute going to death, that extraordinary choice of self-surrendered love. Lord, our love in response is paltry and patchy, but we bring it to you such as it is, and we pray that you will work in our hearts so that we can follow you more nearly and love you more dearly, and become more like you. In your mighty name. Amen.